This gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. With me, I have Dr. Brian Kaplan. And uh, would you like to introduce yourself, doctor? Sure. I'm Brian Kaplan. I'm a professor of economics at George Mason University. I'm also affiliated with the Salem Center of the University of Texas and Middle Tennessee State University. I am the New York Times bestselling author of Open Borders, as well as The Myth of the Rational Voter, The Case Against Education, and Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. I'm also publishing a series of eight books of my best essays. All right. I, I'm very glad uh, I could finally have you on, because um, some viewers of my podcast might know um, that actually, uh, surprisingly, compared to what a lot of my channel has been dedicated to about and the inspiration for it, um, people like Murray Rothbard or Milton Friedman, those weren't the people who got me into libertarianism. It was actually you. Oh, I saw cool. you on uh, Dave Rubin a few years ago uh -huh. at a time where I was very much questioning my ideology and where I was politically, and I saw you talk about uh, particularly education, and it just struck with me. And ever since then, I've been going down this libertarian rabbit hole. So I wanted right. to thank you for that before we got started. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I wanted to have you on because I really do want to talk about what you write about in the case against education because I feel like a lot of the time people, uh, when they talk about education, they just talk about it, oh, we're going to privatize it when it comes to libertarianism. Mm -hmm. And you know, no, no further tweaks needed beyond that. But you kind of really reject this, and you can tell from the title of the book, The Case Against Education. And um, I just wanted to first go into the standard case of why it's not simple enough to just privatize education. Sure. I mean, the important thing to understand is that privatization could mean two totally different things. One is that it could mean that the government just stops spending money on it, and then if you want it, you pay for it. That would really be my ideal policy, in fact, because I think that would lead to a massive crash in the amount of education that people get, which I say would be good. Uh, the other version of privatization is basically just that you fund systems, not students. So you take all the money the government currently spends and you put it into the hands of students, which I think does have uh, some advantages, but basically continue subsidizing a largely dysfunctional sector. Uh, why would I think that it's dysfunctional? It really comes down to this. Just take a look at what people study in school and compare to what they do in the real world, and you'll see that there is a massive chasm between them. There are some useful skills that you learn in school, literacy, numeracy, but most of what you learn in school, you never need to know past the final exam. 
So what in the world is going on? Uh, well, uh, what I say is that most of what's going on is that people don't go to school in order to learn useful skills. Instead, school is a passport to the real training that happens on the job. And the way this passport works basically is the more education you have, the better you do in school, the better you look, the more, the more certified you are, the more stamps you have on your forehead, and the more employers prefer you. But this is really a very zero-sum kind of thing because everyone can't have the best degrees. Everyone can't have the most degrees. So really, we're in a world where when education goes up, the amount of education that you need to do a job stays the same because it's really pretty relevant to the jobs. But the amount of education that you need to get the jobs, on the other hand, keeps going up. And that is what we've seen has happened in the world and the U.S. over the last uh, 80 years or so. Namely, that for one and the same job, the amount of education that you need to be considered worthy of employment just keeps going up. And I say it's because of all the encouragement for education. If everyone else has a degree and you don't, you look bad, even if the degree is really irrelevant for the job. Yeah, I, I and as someone who's read the book and... Um... You know, seeing you extensively talk about it, I definitely agree. But I think sometimes people have this hesitation, and, and at least in my experience when kind of explaining this concept, is they go, they immediately go to STEM fields. They're like, well, yeah. what about the STEM fields? Clearly in the STEM fields, you need some kind of education, and um, you can't just get all this hands-on that you're talking mm -hmm. about. Um, and, and I've seen you talk about the STEM fields, but... Uh, kind of what what is the big difference there between you know say even um, something like I, I know you've talked about it like lawyering could even be done um, without a lot of education like what is what is the big difference there where is that gap first thing to note is even if this complaint were true it would barely matter for the whole system so you know stem graduates are like five to ten percent of all college grads it's hard to do STEM, and that's why most people don't do it. Most people probably couldn't do it, no matter how hard they tried, but even if they could do it, they don't want to because it's too much work. It's too discouraging. Right? So even if this complaint were completely true, we could make the concession and say, fine, let's just get rid of 90 or 95% of the system instead of the whole thing. All right. However, uh, even if you, when you look at the actual STEM fields, what you'll see is they too wind up wasting a lot of people's time on stuff that you never really need to know. My dad is a PhD in engineering. They spent most of grad school on proofs. On the job, he never had to prove anything. All right. Uh, CS. People spend a lot of time on CS theory instead of actual programming. So even there, I would say the system is pretty dysfunctional. It's probably not as dysfunctional as the other fields. At least they got standards. At least there's things that are right and wrong. But even there, a shockingly high share of what a working STEM person actually knows how to do that is useful they pick up after they get the degree and when they finally get to do real hands-on stuff. So yeah, like it, it is very easy to imagine an alternate world where someone that right now goes and studies STEM instead goes and gets a, a STEM apprenticeship and they then learn to do it mostly by doing, possibly with some formal instruction as well. But even that, it's not clear how much the value of the formal instruction is in most areas compared to just actually getting real practice and doing and learning how to do things in the real world. Mm-hmm. So uh, another thing I've seen when I when I bring up the book and and I have actually given people the book before and something they immediately point out to me is they say well 
there's a PhD next to Brian Kaplan's name. You know, how, how, how can he justify, you know, saying we got to have to gut the education system and that it's a complete waste of time. But he's also a PhD and in the economics field, which is largely an academic field. You know, how, what, what, what would happen to these academic fields um, in your ideal system? I talk about this on the first page of the book. <laughs> so it's a little frustrating when someone says, have you ever thought about, yeah, like open the book and read the first page. I guess that would do it. You, the main thing I say in my whole thesis is not that education is a bad idea for the individual, rather that it is, a so, it is socially wasteful. Mm-hmm. You know, in a system where in order to get a good job, you have to get a good, a, a good degree, it would be foolish for someone to unilaterally not do it. But nevertheless, it, it is perfectly reasonable to say, I think in a system where we stop encouraging education would be a big improvement. So that is the heart of it. I'm not saying that education is a bad deal for the individual generally. What I'm saying is that it is a bad system and I am part of that system. So I figured out a way to game it to my own advantage. I'm not getting all high and mighty on people and telling them not to game it for their for their own advantage. Like this is like this is the world you find yourself in. I'm not saying just be a janitor because because school is, is uh, the system we have is stupid. Uh, just to know it is stupid. And if someone says vote for more for more of this, I know less, 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 less. Uh, now, uh, furthermore, so other things to say about this. Let's see. Uh, you know, so what would happen to people like me if people listen to me? Yeah, it would be a disaster for me. I have this fantastic dream job for life. And if uh, I'm at a public university, if taxpayers were to listen to me, then I'd be out on the streets probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not a reason to ignore what I have to say. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the reason why, you know, now, why am I not scared? And it's because, well, I don't think I'm that persuasive. <laughs> um, if I thought that the whole world would listen to me, I would be kind of worried. Um, I would say I would still do it because it's the right thing to do. I'm a whistleblower and I think the taxpayers are getting royally ripped off and I want them to know about it. Uh, you know, I might say, uh, please, uh, after you we go and save the taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars a year, could there someone set aside a special position for me and gratitude? Uh, you know, in the fantasy world where the world listens to me, we can also tack on this slight additional tweak to the fantasy, which is that the people are so grateful to me that they reward me and thank me. But yeah, it would be terrible for people like me. Uh, and guess what? Then we'd have to go get real jobs and be productive members of society. Uh, you know, for heaven forfend that we should actually have to produce goods of value to other human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know, and it, I have to agree with you that that critique has always been startling to me because, well, one, they didn't open the book yet, and you know you address it very very early in the book but another is is i would suggest that it the inverse is true by you advocating yeah, against yeah. it you know you have yeah. every self interest to kind of prop this up and continually um yeah well i mean if people if i thought people would really listen to me really what you can say is that my self esteem should be wrapped up in this and therefore it should make me feel bad to say this is wasteful I think that's what's going on with a lot of academics. They desperately try to say, oh, well, it's really useful for people to study history because this gives people much more thoughtful political views. And if you say, well, think about your uh, the other history professors. Do they seem to have really good views on policy to you? Well, no. Well, if even professors have bad views, why do you think they're able to go and give their students better views than they have themselves? That's a bizarre position. It's like, yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. But 
nevertheless, people don't like that. But yeah, I mean, you know, normally you'd figure that people's bias would be to think that what they do is useful. And what I'm saying is that at least what people like me do is not useful. I mean, you might say I'm like other people because I say, well, it is useful for me to be a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. All right. If we want to go and get that much in the weeds, we could say that. So I, I wanted to hone in on a specific thing you talk about regarding education, and that is the signaling model of education, mm -hmm. because I think that's where it gets, that's where the meat and bones of it is, is because it, it is very much a signaling device, and I think most people would agree, um, mm -hmm. just from the fear, sheer fact that, you know, you can't apply to a job now and they don't ask what kind of education do you have mm -hmm. and most of the times have a minimum requirement of education oh, yeah. usually high school um, but uh, I wanted to ask because you you mentioned in the book that it wasn't always like this mm -hmm. um, but why has it become so prevalent in our education system and you know what is it that we can realistically do to start making it less prevalent because it, it really does lock a lot of people out of job opportunities and economic opportunities that they otherwise probably would have. Yeah, so two things are going on. First of all, the higher the average level of education or society, the worse you look if you don't have that. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason why employers keep jacking up the requirements is saying, well, look, you know, in 1945, only about 25% of American adults would have finished high school. Back in those days, if you said waiters at a restaurant have to have a college degree, it's like good luck finding workers. Now that twenty, you know, like now it actually would be even higher. Maybe thirty percent of all American workers over the age of twenty-five would have a would have a bachelor's degree. Well, in that case, you really can afford to say that if you want to be at my fancy restaurant, you have to have a, have, have a bachelor's degree. The other thing that's different, though, is there just used to be a lot more randomness in the system when college was less was much less affordable, when the system was less uniform, there was more talent in the uneducated pool. And therefore, if you were to be snobbish and say, well, we're not going to look at anyone without a college degree, you would just be throwing away many more people that were good but didn't have the official credentials. In a way, the very fact that we made college so accessible has also made it more uh, made it more valuable to be really strict with saying we have to have the credentials because now if someone doesn't have a bachelor's degree, they have to have a pretty bad story in their lives to explain why not. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like so. I mean, you see, you, know, like, you, know, you could say, okay, well, the reason why I didn't go to college, well, I'm not very bright, I'm not la I'm lazy, I'm defiant. All right, fine. Well, I don't want to hire those people. But if you just say, well, I couldn't afford it, it's like, hmm. There's so many government programs, so much philanthropy devoted to letting poor people go to get their four-year degree that now if you see someone without it, you really do tend to assume the worst and reasonably so compared to the past. doesn't mean that there are no examples of what I call diamonds in the rough. I think there's actually plenty of examples. But it's, you know, basically just to picture yourself being an employer. you got 300 applications. God himself comes down and says there are five excellent workers without college degrees in that stack. What are you going to do? And I'll say uh, probably the same thing as if God hadn't told you that, because it's just too hard to go and give interviews to everybody. You got to figure out some way of making the cut. You can't just go and believe someone when they say I'm awesome. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it really does make a lot of sense to use credentials as your criterion for who even gets an interview, much less who gets hired. Even though, indeed, if you were to go and actually hire a person and then let's see see how well they do. There's going to be some people that lack the credentials. You'll say, oh, wow, this person's actually pretty good despite the lack of credentials. But unfortunately, in the system that we have, it's just too expensive to find out who those people are. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, I wanted to also ask about specifically trade schools because I think that's uh, an area where people go, well, doesn't this solve mm -hmm. for what you're talking about in that, you know, you, your problem with education is that it's just a signaling device that doesn't give that real world school uh, skills, but trade schools do. Mm -hmm. And so w would you say that what you want is to transfer things to trade schools or, or, or no, you what it is kind of a get rid of the schooling aspect and just put them in the job as I've seen you say it before. Trade schools are a big improvement. And if you just go and break down the different things that schools currently teach, I would say the vocational education is some of the most socially valuable and also probably um, high, pretty high among, uh, probably pretty high for the, the selfish value for the student too. I would say that the presumption that what we should do is keep people in classrooms and then just teach them plumbing instead of other stuff, that still is probably basically the, like not, you know, that's far from the best thing to do. Most people learn a lot better from doing than they do from being lectured at. So yeah, I think that for most purposes, it would be better to just have people learning on the job in an apprenticeship type program. I don't rule out that there's some people that would benefit more from a trade school. I just like to see all the options on the table. But yeah, the, but you know, like if you just define vocational education broadly as any kind of education that tries to teach you practical tasks in whatever means that you can, I think it's best to keep an open mind about that and just remember that you know, professors learn well from lectures, normal people don't. Yeah, I, I I definitely like you saying the the you know professors learn well from lectures. Normal people don't because in, in my own experience and I think many people's experiences, the things that they have mo le learned the most have been the things that they use. And you're always using something if you're learning it, you know, doing. So I I think a lot of people agree with that. But I think even after hearing all these things, I I've seen people still have this pushback. And I think it's from what you described earlier of, you know, we have this idea that if people learn history, if they learn civics, if they learn science, they'll become more knowledgeable and be better voters, better citizens and all these things. And this kind of gets into your other book, The Myth of the Rational Voter. But I, I wanted to go into that and discuss why, mm -hmm. why that's not true, why, mm -hmm. you know, teaching them these things don't actually make better voters. Right. The important thing is not to judge the system by its good intentions. The fact that someone says we are offering, we're requiring two years of civics classes in order to turn people into good voters. All right. Well, that's what you're trying to do. That doesn't show that you actually succeed. There we want to see what do people actually know. Furthermore, it's not good enough just to show that people know stuff on the day of the final exam. You want to show that they retain it. Because what good is it to learn how to be a better voter in high school if by the time that you are 19 years old, you don't remember any of the stuff that you were actually told? So anyway, what I say is that any time that you are judging school by some criterion other than does it help people to get a better job, you've got to set aside the official propaganda and look at the results. We have very good data on these results. And what they tell us is that for everything outside of basic literacy and numeracy, Typical American adult knows next to nothing. Mm -hmm. right? A good way of thinking about it is this. Step one, imagine writing the easiest possible test you could write about, say, civics or history or science. Questions as easy as how many senators does each state have? Or what century did the Civil War take place in? Or does the earth go around the sun or the sun go around the earth? Right? Questions that easy. 
All right. Then go and give that to a random sample of American adults. All right. What we know is that typical adult will get about half of those questions right when they're super easy. Right. Which you might say, well, better than nothing. And I say, eh. I mean, here's the thing. If someone knows half the letters of the alphabet, what do you call them? Half literate? No, you call them illiterate. Because if you only know half the letters in the alphabet, you cannot read. Similarly, I say that when we see that someone only knows half of the very most basic facts of civics or history or science, we shouldn't call them half literate in those fields. We should call them illiterate in those fields. They really don't have a clue what's going on. If right now you don't even know which party controls the federal, federal house representatives, what do you know about American politics? Mm -hmm. You just really haven't, you don't have a clue about what's going on if you don't know that. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people, you know, they kind of inherently know these facts, and they they know that a few people a few people. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess, I guess probably not inherent, probably not inherent, but yeah, a few people know these facts. Well, yes, yes. Sorry, I should say <laughs> most people know that you know our education system is not producing these results that they claim that they will get from you know history, and. You know, if you gave them that test, they'd probably demonstrate that they they know this by not knowing the answers to those mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. But people will often say, "Well, oh, well, that's just a failure of you know us not funding mm -hmm. our education well enough, or, or creating these programs that that actually educate them well enough." And you know, I, I've seen you kind of rebuke that, mm -hmm. not only on the sense that you know education spending has actually been increasing but also that that that's just impossible you just won't get yeah. those results ever right well impossible is too strong but y'all what i will say is two things first of all spending per student in america is astronomical like you know during like you know, during uh high covid it peaked about twenty thousand dollars per student per year in k-12 all right so if you can't get results with that kind of spending then that is just ridiculous uh, but second of all the thing what i really say is this the best way to the best predictor of future performance is past performance. You want to know what the schools are going to do. Look at what they have done. Don't listen to promises. Don't listen to wishful thinking. Just look at past performance, right? And what we see is that past performance has been terrible for as long as we've had data, and therefore we should not expect it to ever be good. Is it impossible to ever be good? No, it's not impossible. It's just totally unreasonable to bet on it. Right. We should expect that it will continue to be a, a giant sinkhole for money. And again, as to why that is, there are two explanations. You could say it's just that there's just no way to actually teach this material. It's just too hard. Or you could say that the schools just stubbornly refuse to use the good methods. I honestly think that it's probably the second thing. I think there actually are ways of improving student learning a lot. But American schools are just too pig-headed to actually admit this and use them. You know, for example, like right now, we'll, you, you'll, you, we usually have American students do about two to three years of foreign language education, and under 1% of Americans even claim that they learn to speak a foreign language very well in school. Is it impossible to teach foreign language? It is not. It can be done. Right? People all over the world learn foreign languages, but it can't be done using the attitude that we currently have, which is a touchy-feely, how you know, touchy-feely, like, you know, artistic approach to it where we have low standards and we try to make everyone feel good. 
No, there's there's one way that works to learn a foreign language, and that is the method that was used in you know, UC Berkeley when I was studying in German. You know, man kann hier kein Englisch sprechen, nein, nein, nein. Right, that's the one. Day one, no English is allowed. High standards, either like sink or swim. Like, you know, like you know, lots of studying, lots of work. Only speak German in class all the time, and just torture people until you get results. Right now, it's obvious why schools don't use these methods because the kids will be crying and whining. It's easier for the teacher to just have them sing some songs and pretend like people are learning stuff. Right, but we could get much better results by being very hard nosed about it. Unfortunately. Uh, you know, people would rather go and take taxpayer money and then do some singing and dancing and then act like that's good enough and it's just not. So yeah, if we really wanted to get results, I think we could improve a lot. This isn't to say that we could get night and day improvements, but yeah, if we really wanted to get students to learn more, we could totally do it. A lot of it would also just be spending more time on task. Like you, like you can't expect kids to learn, learn math well if they spend 43 minutes a day on, uh, 43 minutes a day on it as they do in my home area, Fairfax County Public Schools. No, they should be doing two or three hours of math a day. And then where did we get the extra time from? Yeah, we get rid of all the stuff that's, that people don't really need, like music and art, that stuff. We just say, look, we can't do everything. We're gonna have make sure the students learn math. At least we're gonna try a lot harder. We're gonna triple, the, triple or quadruple the dosage of math and that will pay off. Mm. So that's something else that could be done. If people meant business, I mean, here's what I actually say. If you go to almost any American school, and I've, you know, I've, done, I've done this, I, you know, I say, look, the teachers are very, very nice. They are not, however, logical, results-oriented, or evidence-based. They teach in the way that feels good for them, which is a very touchy-feely, lack-of-standards approach. And that is, a pro that is an approach that, that gets you very poor results. Yeah, I, I, I think... You definitely hit the the core problem with, at least on the teacher side and the, the actual teaching side of what what's happening with American education more and more, and and I'm glad you brought up other countries because I I think we see this very stark gap between American education and a lot of other first world countries, particularly in Northern Europe. Um, Japan is another one that I think of when I think of this the stark gap between the results that are produced from education between these countries. And I wanted to ask if you thought that the reason that they did that is because of either what you described before that they have this very much swinker, sink or swim attitude about them or if they're doing a lot more in rebuking this like signaling model of education and instead focusing on these results-based kind yeah. of education, even though I don't think there is an example we have of where we fully see where the education system is as gutted as you would want it. But, you know, mm -hmm. are, are they close in any way? Right. When we try to do international comparisons of student performance, usually researchers use something called the PISA scores, my understanding is the U.S. basically is in the middle of rich countries on PISA scores. Mm -hmm. <coughs> We're not doing badly for a rich country. We're not doing great. We're about in the middle. There's also just not that much variation in the performance of rich countries. I think actually the biggest predictor of how well a country is doing is demographics, where if you just look at the share uh, shares of Asians, whites, Hispanics, and blacks, you'll see that Asians do the best, followed by whites, followed by Hispanics, followed by blacks. 
This is something that is very reliable across a lot of different countries. There are many different stories about what's going on, but nevertheless, this is something that you really want to know about uh, when you were trying to understand what you can reasonably expect to get out of the system. So there's that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think a lot of the problems the U.S. has really actually, when you look at the numbers, come down to demographics. So if you look at uh, areas of the U.S. that are basically all white or white and Asian, those areas will actually be comparable to the richest, or the richest country, or you know, to the highest scoring rich countries in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I, by the way, I am only a messenger. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my fault. I didn't do this. Yeah. No, I, as soon as you said that, I was like very much only the messenger here. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I, I think it's interesting you bring that up because I think that is the connecting thread between the higher um, performing countries is, you know, Northern Europe, very homogenous, mm -hmm. some of the most mm -hmm. homogenous countries in the world. Japan, uh, very homogenous. Yeah. Japan is, of course, uh, Scandinavia no longer is. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think so. Sweden's foreign born share is higher than the, than the U.S. now. Oh, we're really? I, yeah, I did not. Know Nor that. Nor Norway, Norway would be lower. I think Denmark's lower, but I mean, some of those are just other EU people, but they also have taken in a lot of refugees and things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I I think it is apt that you bring that up because you know there there are a lot of things that I think are static that we can't exactly change in the way that that you could just change like an education policy. Like, you can't just completely change the demographics of a country overnight. Mm -hmm. You can change an education yeah, policy well, overnight. Uh, there's some really bad people who change them downwards, but other than that, <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I think that kind of where where we, we get this is, or, or what is so great about what you would want to do to education is that it is, regardless of the demographics, mm -hmm the results would not be swayed mm -hmm. by that because it is very mm -hmm. much throwing them mm -hmm. into the the skills of it and, and learning on the job. And when you learn on the job, it really is sink or swim. Mm -hmm. So I you know, a, lot of people, a lot of people complain about me and they say, well, look, your system is really terrible for anyone from a poor family. And that's where I say, well, look, it might actually be worse for the super talented people from poor families. But... If you just add, but let's ask a different question. Suppose you could either be high school dropout today or 1945 when that was 75% of the adult population. When would you want to be looking for a job? It's like pretty obviously it was easier for high school dropout to get a good job in 1945. So I, like I'm first to admit, maybe like, like you know, educational austerity cutting would actually make things a bit worse for the top of the, for the, of the, very, the most talented people for, you know, in poor families. But on the other hand, the system we have really cuts out a lot of other opportunities for everyone else in families like that. So the net effect, I think, is at minimum much more complicated than people assume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's something I appreciate about your perspective, not just on this issue, but on most issues a lot more than other people is because it is very much a realist thing where, mm -hmm. you know, you don't say, oh, you know, overnight we're gonna have utopia. We're gonna have our little, you know, Ancapistan, if as lots of people like to say. Um, but but you very much take like here is what the data suggests. Here is what is suggested based on the past experience. And um, I think that's a very refreshing exp uh, explanation for people, especially people of my audience who, you know, get a lot 
nitty gritty into the theory and, and high um, intellectual um, sophisms about what will happen with society. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of, as a wrapping up our discussion on the topic, move into um, where you think specifically the disciplines of like economics and social sciences would end up in this system. Would there yeah. still be economists out there? Would we still have a use for yeah. them and other social sciences in general if we don't have, you know, academic institutions like we do today? Right. So, I mean, without government funding, there would still be all kinds of academic institutions. Their funding would be a lot lower. A lot of them would go out of business. But just from philanthropy alone, I mean, the truth is that Harvard could just stop collecting any tuition from anyone and just live off the interest probably for eternity. <laughs> right. So I, th I think basically what would go on is that the large majority, probably something like 95% of the research institutions that we have right now would just give up on that. Also, of course, they very, very rarely produce anything that anyone even reads or cares about. And then the, at the top, though, they would still be around. I don't think that this by itself would be enough to really change the ideological bias of the system. That's unfortunate. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, I would say that they would still, the kind of thing that's still going on would still continue to go on. Uh, probably there would also be some expansion in research opportunities at think tanks and things like that, because those are basically funded by philanthropy. So that would be a bigger part of it. But yeah, really what we see is a big crash in the number of PhD granting institutions, the number of the number of new PhDs per year uh, in order to rebalance supply and demand. I think that essentially the system would continue as it is on maybe 120th of the current scale. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, as for whether that's better or worse, uh, I would say overall, I think that's a lot better because you know, at minimum, most of the research that goes on is just read by zero people and has no effect. So who cares? Mm -hmm. And then out of top schools, uh, you know, that stuff may have more value. I think it's, uh, the, the academia has become so uniformly left-wing that actually I think mo the, probably the net effect of it is negative now. Um, like it's just better if it just, uh, on balance, if it stops happening. Of course, that doesn't mean that it's all bad, just that the, uh, net, that the net value is bad now. Um, you know, cutting funding by itself would not go and change that. Um, you know, of course, if it, if it happened, there would be probably, there'd be part of a just much bigger ideological shift, but then we're getting into real fantasy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I, I i think you're definitely right on that because i think some people forget how much of research already is privately funded um mm -hmm. though though as you say there would be less demand for it yeah. if we if we cut you know the academic bulwark mm -hmm. um i mean most uh, academic research like especially definitely in the humanities but also in the social sciences barely cost anything actually <laughs> you know, like, when, like when, when an economic theorist gets a government grant, like why do you need that to do math? And it's like, well, this way I can get a course buyback. I can go and have more time to do it. It's like, yeah, you know, I think you could go enough during your, uh, during your spare, whatever much you work minus the 150 hours of teaching per year. Mm -hmm. So there's only, you know, and then for like the typical professor do do a writing papers on Shakespeare or whatever. It's like, wow, you need money for that. You already get a salary. Why do you need additional funding on top of that to do this stuff? Uh, so there's a lot of that. I mean, I think economists will point to the ultra data intensive thing where they're coming with data sets of 10 billion observations. 
Uh, that stuff does cost more, although even that I would say, look, maybe of a greater intellectual value, is it like a million times better than the stuff that came before? I don't think so. So it's like, all right, fine, we might lose a bit of that stuff. I don't see that it's really so great. Uh, it's better than what came before, but that stuff wasn't so great either. Um, yeah, I, I and I, I I think I have to agree with you completely about all that stretch, um, particularly on how these fields would likely still exist, but we'd be cutting out most of the econom- academic waste. And I appreciate you also saying about kind of like how much the left-wing ideology has infiltrated it anyways that yeah, I mean, infiltration makes it seem like it's some weird outside thing I, <laughs> I i prefer to say metastasize where it was long a very big part of academia but i think it had sort of the last barriers have broken down and now almost all of humanities and social sciences are highly politicized mm-hmm. and yeah better probably just point just to shut them down if you if it's either keep it as it is or shut it all down shut it all down yeah i actually i think i think calling it a miss um calling it as you have yeah. is a better is a better analogy because yeah. it, it is kind of an inherently left-wing field if you really think about yes. it and the like, like economics has long been the least so mm-hmm. but you know like basically 25 years ago there'd be like a democrat republican ratio of about two to one but now, again, among young people, it's probably getting up to more like 10 to 1. Yeah. So it looks, looks like economics is going the way of sociology and things like that, where it is an almost uniformly left-wing mm-hmm. area, and people that don't agree with that don't feel comfortable going into it. Yeah. And and so I, I think that is a point that I think a lot more of people on the right or libertarians can like hone in on and be like, actually this would be you know overall positive thing that the net positives we get out of academics are kind of mm-hmm. gone already and yeah. so nothing being lost but yeah um, well not you know, not nothing but just you know basically we have a lot of stuff that's that's worse than nothing mm. and then we have some good stuff still happening but yeah so of course the best thing of all is to get rid of everything bad and keep everything good yes all right so if i if i have that option i'll press that button precisely <laughs> But uh, yeah, we don't normally have that button. <laughs> well, uh, I wanted to thank you for coming on and discussing this, and I wanted to, as I give all my guests the floor for you to uh, promote anything you wanted to promote to my audience, want to make them aware of, and um, things you just have going on at the moment. All right. Well, like I said, I've got a bunch of books that I've already published. Uh, if you go to Amazon and search my name, you'll see them. The latest things that I'm doing, like I said, I've been releasing uh, eight books of my best essays, so two volumes are already out. The first volume uh, is called Labor Econ vs. the World. The second one is called How Evil Are Politicians. Uh, I've got another book coming out soon called Don't Be a Feminist. And then there are going to be, after that, five more books of essays. And then I've got a bunch of other projects I'm working on. The next big project that will be coming out where it's all original work is going to be another nonfiction graphic novel on housing regulation called Build Baby Build, The Science and Ethics of Housing Regulation. And then after that, more stuff is happening. I blog for the Salem Center at the University of Texas under the name Bet On It. That's a Substack. So betonit.substack.com. And yeah, other than that, uh, you can go to my webpage, bcaplin.com, and see what I'm doing. All right. Yep. Thank you again for coming Thank on. Thank you. And, okay. uh, Hope you have a wonderful day. We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can 
to stop these terrorist killers. Thank, Thank you. you. Now watch this drive. <laughs> 